Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 88 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. My dad turned 88 last month, a good number. Happy birthday. So, yeah, happy, thanks. He's doing well. Today we're going to cover two cases. We searched for a third, uh, but nothing that uh, we found to be particularly within our lanes. Our lanes, sometimes as we've talked about, it can be broad, but uh, we have to understand our limits as well. And uh, so there, there you have it. Uh, the first case today is North American Elite Insurance versus Menard, Inc., an interesting Seventh Circuit case that deals with the settlement and obligations to excess carriers uh, by primaries and uh, those with large self-insured pensions. Don't call those insurance. Right. We'll get we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Easterbrook was on a, on his. Uh, he was on a tear. Was on a tear. Is right. The second case today is Viking River Cruises, Inc. versus Moriana, a Supreme Court case involving questions of the Federal Arbitration Act and bilateral arbitration claims and the Private Attorney General Act that California has in place for many years. With that, let's turn to the first case today, North American Elite. Does an insured with a $2 million self-insured retention owe a duty to its excess carrier to settle within that retention, absent language in the policy, obligating it to do so. That is essentially the question the Seventh Circuit will answer when it decides North American Elite Insurance versus Menard, Inc. Menard had the opportunity to settle a matter for $1.9 million and declined, and a verdict was entered for $12 million that was reduced to $6 million pursuant to a high-low agreement that was in effect. The primary policy with Greenwich had specific language that gave Menard control of settlement, but imposed a duty to be reasonable for the benefit of Greenwich. No such language was in the excess policy, and that was a big uh, focus at the oral argument. Uh, there are some great lines from the court about its duty to predict Illinois law, where Illinois courts have not spoken on the issue. Pat, with that, tell us about this interesting oral argument with uh, featuring Easterbrook on his chair. He was, uh, and, and I will say, it, not to be outdone, I believe it was just Judge Hamilton and Judge Wood were also on the panel, and they... They, they were very focused on more of the substance of the issue. Uh, justice, or just, sorry, that just, Judge Easterbrook was, don't call him justice. Judge Easterbrook was very, uh, you know, he, he was annoyed that the case was even in front of them. He's like, why are you here? So apropos of one of the lines, uh, I'm just going to play the segment of the argument where this okay. comes up. And this is a line of questioning, though not as colorful the first time, that Judge Easterbrook gave to both advocates. Um, so let me cue this up. So, so with that, let's uh, cue up this segment of the argument with uh, Judge Easterbrook uh, uh, highlighting what his view of this situation is from a procedural perspective. Uh, 
point. Um, I merely wanted to point out that um, the Seventh Circuit has indeed followed the Illinois Supreme Court opinion in Boyles. And I agree, Boyles answers the question. Well, it would be better to say we've done our best. The phrase is we are ventriloquist donkeys, and the question is whether you emphasize the first word or the second. Fair enough. So that's a whole lot more colorful way to describe the Erie Doctrine, uh, calling <laughs> federal district judges and federal circuit judges and indeed Supreme Court justices uh, ventriloquist dummies, which is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to figure out what Illinois law is. Uh, and to their credit, there was a decision that came out this week, Bond versus United Equitable, where the Seventh Circuit had ruled in a case called Sigler versus Geico, uh, cited in the, the Illinois Appellate Court opinion, Bond versus United Equitable, where the Seventh Circuit did just that. They predicted correctly what the Illinois courts would do on a particular issue of uh, payment of sales tax and uh, um, on total losses, uh, sales tax and title transfer fees on total losses. So they get it right. So uh, I think it was Judge Hamilton that said that the excess carrier here is trying to ride piggyback on what the primary carrier uh, Greenwich had. Um, and to that point, Judge Easterbrook said that the, uh, the insured is just supposed to, you know, all this robust language in the primary policy, the Greenwich policy, that says they've got all these duties to the primary carrier. Yes, you have control. Of the duty to defend, of the duty to, of the settlement, and of the dollar one on defense, but you have to exercise that duty or exercise that uh, responsibility in our favor. So the normal situation when you don't have it, you know, Menard's got a lot of bargaining power. They can have a lot of control over the situation because they're a big, they're a big insured. The normal situation is is that the the settlement and the defense obligations are are entirely taken on by the insurance company, and they control whether the matter settles, and the insured has absolutely nothing to say about the situation. Not so when you get an insured that's big enough, and in some cases, a company like Menard, maybe they're even bigger than their insurance company. Um, they've got a good deal of bargaining power, and they exercise it in order to get some control, keep costs down, keep the premiums low, and get control of whether they're going to settle a case or not. Well, sometimes that goes south, as it did here, and that exposes their excess carriers. Now, normally what happens is, an insurance company that, that makes a mistake, it's got insurance on its insurance. Right. Uh, if it makes a mistake, it's got an excess judgment. Well, in this case, this is all going to the uh, to the excess carrier. Now they may have uh, they may have coverage for that, but it's just a, they would rather not have to pay for it at all because it affects their premiums on what they're paying on their reinsurance. Right. Um, and there was this argument that uh, counsel for the uh, appellant. The insurance company said, well, they've got a good faith, they've got a duty of good faith and fair dealing. No. <laughs> good faith and fair dealing is a method of construction, not a duty. Right. It, it is a method of constructing a, a policy um, that is ambiguous. Well, in this case, there is no language. So there is no application of the duty of good faith and fair dealing. Um, now, if they were interpreting the Greenwich provision that had the language of this reasonable, the reasonableness imposed on Menards, and yes, that, and if it were found to be ambiguous, then you might look at this canon, but otherwise, not so much. And then we come to this issue that I, I, I <laughs> uh, of the deductible, and Judge uh, Easterbrook bristled at the term uh, self-insured retention. He says it's not insurance because it's not risk shifting. I'm not sure I agree with that. 
part of the insurance. It's part of the overall package is you're going to self-insure for some of it. And that's called the deductible. Right. And it's to put some skin in the game, number one. But number two, it re- again, it reduces the premium by the insurance, by the insured uh, insuring some of the risk. But it's part of the overall scheme of the insurance. It's not some other thing. It's outlined specifically in the insurance that there's going to be a certain portion of claims that are self-insured. Uh, we call it, you know, whether you call it a deductible or a self-insured retention, uh, whether it's a defense and indemnity or, or retention, or whatever it happens. Co-insurance. Co-insurance. There's a lot of terms that are used. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and co-insurance may, you know, that's from where you're both paying dollar one. Right. Is co-insurance. This is dollar one was being paid by the insured, both of defense and indemnity obligations up to something like $2 million. Um, so it's all part of an insurance scheme of how you spread that risk. Some of the risk is retained by the insured. Some of it is spread over to the insurance company. Uh, that's all insurance. Uh, no matter how, in my view, no matter how you slice it. Uh, but an interesting case, because it seems that there's a case on point. I'm not particularly familiar with this Royals case that they were talking about, right. but uh, it seems that there's a case on point. But either way, uh, imposing such a duty would be very interesting in the absence of some language So in the policy. So we'll see what happens there. Dan, other things, anything to add on, on this particular case? No, just a few things, Pat. One is, again, we've talked about this and Maybe some sometime we'll have somebody that actually has the answer. But this was less than 20 minutes, this oral argument total. And Easterbrook at some point uh, early on <laughs> with the appellant said, hey, we've got limited time here, so we'll, let's not go there. You know, he wanted to focus in on, on the ventriloquist dummy <laughs> and other people. The Erie Doctrine issue. And, and Why are we in federal court? But uh, interesting for that. And also, you know, the, 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 this duty of good faith and fair dealing um, and bad faith. We've talked about bad faith before. Uh, when I used to teach insurance law, there are some cases where insureds are found to have acted in bad faith, but it's a very rare circumstance. It really, uh, if you look throughout all the insurance cases that have been decided over the years, very few cases find very few insured, reverse bad faith cases. Right, right, because it's just the, the 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 good faith and fair dealing, like you said, is contractual and it's kind of a principle, and and seen as the insurer's duty. Right, when it when there's situations. Sometimes you see the flip of this, right, is, is that uh, there's an insurer uh, that, that for whatever reason decides to defend and, and, and either informs the insured or, or takes the position, doesn't grant the authority to settle. Like you said, it mostly is in the hands of the insured, the insurer. And, and in those cases, if this were the reverse, right, if, if the insurer, insurer had refused here and it wasn't a huge self-insured retention, $12 million verdict, that's kind of the risk they take sometimes. And so then you get into, you know, whether, whether the insured would be on the hook for that, but a very interesting case here. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things I think, uh, here as well is, is again, all the insurance cases decided, um, according to, uh, all the advocates, there's no exact case on point in Illinois, uh, that deals with this exact issue. So kind of interesting. It is to your point about the, uh, oral argument length. Uh, the, there was an argument this week, a former colleague of mine had in front of the Seventh Circuit, it was um, East Coast Entertainment versus Houston Casualty, and he had a whopping eight and a half minutes. That was the time he was assigned. He, he used five. He kept it, he kept it short. Uh, it, was a, it was a COVID-19 case. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he kept it short. 
because he thought he was doing fine. So he kept, but he only had eight and a half minutes, which leads me to believe they had only they had only scheduled seventeen minutes to begin with. So which is again, I, I I would love for somebody to if a listener to weigh in on exactly how the Seventh Circuit assigns times because they're so inconsistent, right? Sometimes we'll listen to cases that go on for an hour and then seventeen minutes, and they're very strict with the time. They I are. mean. They, they, I mean, I think this argument ended with no rebuttal time because he had used it all up. Right. So you don't get rebuttal. You're done. Right. You know, some of the some of the judges, or particularly Judge Wood, will be a little more charitable and say, "All right, we'll give you a minute for you. You went over, but we'll give you a minute for rebuttal. Uh, just you know, wrap things up. You know, wrap things up." No, nope. Judge Easterbrook was presiding, so nope, you don't get. You, you used your time. You don't get any more. That's it. See you later. Right. Uh, so it's they're very they're very strict on the time as a general rule. Yeah. And uh, so where you come up with eight and a half minutes is <laughs> seems somewhat random. It does. But there we are. All right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with uh, Viking versus Moriana. back for segment two of episode 88 of the Podium and Panel podcast and for our second case, Viking versus Mar- Mariana. Whether the Federal Arbitration Act requires enforcement of a bilateral arbitration agreement providing that an employee cannot raise representative claims, including under PAGA, the Private Attorney General's Act in California, is the issue presented in Viking Cruises, Inc. versus Mariana was, that was argued this week before the Supreme Court of the United States. Moriana was a sales representative for Viking and claimed that her last check was incorrect, but then brought a representative claim on behalf of all employees under, under PAGA for all employment claims for all employees, despite the arbitration clause and the following class action waiver in her employment contract. Quote, there will be no right or authority for any dispute to be brought, heard or arbitrated as a class, collective, representative, or private attorney general action or as a member of any purported class, collective, representative, or private attorney general proceeding, including without limitation, uncertified class actions, class action waiver, end quote. One of the central issues in the case is whether PAGA is a procedural or substantive rule of law. That is, does it merely create a mechanism for aggregating claims or does it create a cause of action? The Ninth Circuit held that the FAA did not preempt the plaintiff's claims. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. Thanks, Pat. And a couple of things I want to talk about, you know, you and I, I think yesterday or the day before when we were talking about getting ready for this case, when I first listened to it, um, it seemed like uh, Paul Clement, who we've talked about as an exceptional, frequent advocate before the Supreme Court of the United States. Over 100 arguments. Yeah. And, and, it, and it really seemed like he was getting a lot of pushback uh, as the appellant uh, for Viking Cruises. Uh, but then when I listened to it again, and when you, when you read the kind of uh, summaries on SCOTUS blog and in other places, and you think about and listen to uh, uh, most of the justices, maybe with the exception of the three uh, liberals, um, the appellee um, uh, seemed like not many of the justices were buying this. And, and there's, a, there's some history here. And I think for the listeners, it's good to know about two cases that were substantially talked about extensively in the case. Uh, the, the first is EPIC. Uh, EPIC Systems is a 2018 case that involved the National Labor Relations Act and the Federal Arbitration Act. Uh, in that case, uh, I think it was a 5-4 court, uh, how the Congress uh, has instructed 
that uh, FAA arbitration agreements providing for individualized proceedings uh, must be enforced. And you read the language here, Pat, it's very clear. Uh, what they specifically is. mentioned private attorney general's act. Right, right. Um, and, and, and in Epic in 2018, the court said nothing in the uh, Federal Arbitration Act uh, savings clause or in the National Labor Relations Act saves or otherwise affects that, that ruling. Um, what the, what the uh, court said was, quote, courts must enforce arbitration agreements according to their terms, including terms providing for individualized proceedings, end quote. Um, so that, that's one thing. The second thing that uh, uh, listeners might hear if they listen to this argument or read any of it, this is a case, Iskanian, uh, which was a California Supreme Court case from 2014. Uh, and what that said was that arbitration agreements uh, purporting to waive a right to bring uh, representative actions under PAGA are unenforceable under state California state law. And there was a lot of talk uh, at, the, at the oral argument and a lot of questions, uh, as you mentioned, about whether this is procedural or substantive. Also, whether the state's rights can be waived via contract, right, because this is intended uh, to uh, enforce the labor code in, in the state of California. Um, one of the interesting things is, is again, Iskanian was in 2014, so I think Kagan and Sotomayor kept saying, well, this was not, uh, in PAGA, was not intended to kind of play games with the epic ruling, right, that there was before. Um, but one, one thing that uh, is, is very uh, true is that, is that the Supreme Court has not been very receptive uh, to California actions and encroachments on uh, the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, and so one of the things that I read about in getting ready for this is that many petitions for cert uh, involving PAGA uh, in the last several years have been uh, denied by the Supreme Court of the United States, including uh, in October, DoorDash had, uh, had filed a petition for cert on very similar facts. But I, I guess what happened in the DoorDash case was that DoorDash settled uh, with the plaintiffs in that case. And so the, the court may have decided that this was not, in fact, a good case for argument. So uh, as you said, a lot of time was spent on this procedural versus substantive uh, arguments. Uh, a lot of questions about uh, whether, uh, again, uh, via private contract, you can usurp or over override uh, the uh, enforcement schemes that a state such as California had put in place. One of the interesting questions I think that, that uh, Nelson, uh, who argued for the appellee, in this case the plaintiff, uh, was asked is, is that California uh, is the only state uh, in the union, it seems, that has, in fact, this kind of PAGA scheme. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things I think that Clement pointed out in rebuttal uh, is that... And his, and his main argument. And his main argument is no other state uh, filed an amicus brief in this case. Uh, nobody else came uh, to try to support California's position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, PAGA and its, its enforcement provisions. Um, so a, a lot of the, uh, a lot of discussions, one of the things I think that you and I talked about, and I still have no idea what in the hell was being talked about, but this is maybe one of the last, uh, instances where we get some of the briar, uh, the, the befuddling that, that. He even befuddled Roberts. himself with the argument. Yeah. 
that chief or the, the hypothetical right the chief justice roberts talked about in his in his retirement letter congratulating him and i thought it was a joke at first and then i looked and like no he he was right and it is you and i've talked about briar um he 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 has these hypotheticals. He he's very conversational sometimes. Okay, we have to do this. We have to do that. But uh, the thing that if if listeners listen to this oral argument, uh, that that maybe fuddle them as much as it did you and I, Pat, is he asked the question about what if you put a spider next to an arbitration clause, and then with the spider it said that you that that no arbitration was possible and uh, i don't know I, what the arachnid had to do with the arbitration. i i i don't know i the advocate i commend him for not saying justice i haven't the foggiest idea what you're talking about i don't know what he was talking i mean about. he tried to go along with it but but uh i i i listened to it twice i i read it and and still i read it again this morning uh, ahead of this uh podcast and i i still have no idea what he's talking about yeah i don't know uh, what the i don't know what the spider has to do with it you know, one of one of the questions I think that was asked here, and and uh, it, it's it'll be interesting how the court decides on this. But uh, one one of the the things here I think that uh, at least Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, and, and a couple of the other justices maybe were pressing on, is this kind of concept. I think at one time, uh, you know, you can't it's subject to arbitration, uh, but then uh, I, I think what some of the justices were trying to get at. Is that uh, if uh, if if only the individual can only arbitrate their individual uh, labor uh, dispute, then there's no mechanism to enforce the PAGA, right? The the for the state to enforce its kind of uh, public policies and issues here. Um, and again, I'm not sure that that's going to uh, be persuasive to the justices. Uh, the other uh, thing I thought was interesting at one point, I think it was Alito. Uh, that asked the question, and uh, it wasn't quite clear until that point, but under PAGA, you can actually have claims that are not the same or similarly situated. Right. So unlike a class action where it has to have commonality and, and all the other things, uh, under this PAGA scheme, literally one employee could, if, if this were to go forward in arbitration or in litigation, you could bring whatever the, the employer did wrong, right, in, in terms of labor code. And so you could just imagine that you'd have this disparate group of, of many people. And I think Clement, we, we talked about his phenomenal rebuttal in the guns rights case. I think here, one of the things that he really pointed out, uh, it might be instructive for the justices, is that 17 pocket cases get filed a day uh, in, in California. Um, and so it's, it's a real issue, right? Because again, these things sound like they're, they could be very unwieldy because they don't have the same characteristics as, as a class action and the requirements of commonality and typicality and all the other stuff that is required under uh, class actions. Um, the only other thing I'll, I'll say, and then, then I'll let you talk, Pat, is, is that there was some comparison to the Fair Labor Standard Act, and Clement really, I think, tried to bring home that, that those actions are very similar to this in terms of the kind of size and scope and and that those things uh as mentioned you know the the the, the supreme court of the united states um, and other courts have uh, have strongly enforced uh the the faa right and it's it's regime uh the what the, the only other wrinkle i guess here is that you know unlike epic which, which involved the national labor relations act 
this is a state law, and so there were some questions about that. Is there a difference because can states do things that you know the, are they are they preempted by uh, the FAA to the same extent that the federal is? So Pat, with that, I want to say I was I have to say I was unaware of this statute or this mechanism in California until I listened to this case, and and given the numbers that were thrown out of people that are these cases that are filed, um, I, I I want to harken back to. You know, there was, and, and there was actually the term was used, uh, these uh, these private attorneys general. The Supreme Court's heard another case this term with private attorneys general. Um, on the flip side, politically, uh, in the Texas in the Texas case, right. that uh, in the same kind of a thing, but for an entirely different purpose. Right. This seems to be PAGA seems to be for the purpose of enforcing labor laws. Whereas the Texas case was for the purpose of enforcing a uh, an abortion restriction. Now, the there's not a constitutional dimension to this in the same way there is in the abortion context. The constitutional dimension here deals with the supremacy clause and the language of the Federal Arbitration Act and whether this there is this implied supremacy. And and as I think it was Justice Sotomayor said, some of my colleagues aren't a big fan of. Of imply of of implied supremacy, right. almost like saying, "I know you guys want to rule in favor of the of the petitioner here, but you guys always say you don't believe this." Was really what she was saying. Right. Um, but it is very. It's it, it, the states have a lot of a lot of uh, tools in their toolkit that they can use, and the question is whether this particular tool is preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, if it is, uh, the private attorney general statute essentially in the Texas abortion case was created to get around standing and all uh, things arising out of and to make it very difficult to, to who to enjoin in the abortion context. This, as quite rightly pointed out by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, wasn't crafted in order to get around Epic and Concepcion, but rather was, but rather it stands alone and it, and it, uh, whether it does effectively get around it, we'll see. Um, I, I have a, I, in listening to it, I don't see why the court's previous jurisprudence doesn't bar these claims. Uh, PAGA does not create a cause of action. It creates a manner to aggregate claims that, as Dan pointed out, and as what the, the opening kind of said, have no earthly business being together, but the state wants to create a procedural mechanism. It certainly can do that. The question, can it do that in the face of an arbitration clause that specifically says you can't do that? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll yeah. see. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, our usual segments, rule of the week, COVID-19 update and predictions sure to go wrong. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Back for segment three of episode 88 of the Podium and Panel podcast. 
And we're going to start off with a normal segment. We don't have a third case today, as we said at the top. So we're going to talk about business interruption for COVID. Uh, in Illinois, there was actually some activity this week. Otherwise, pretty slow. But uh, a couple cases, we'll talk about LE64 and predictions sure to go wrong. Uh, that was a case that had to do with uh, certification of a class uh, down in uh, Illinois. And then uh, there was also the ABW case. Pat, do you want to mention that briefly? And then the uh, other case. So the ABW case was another first district case that kind of held along the lines of Lee versus State Farm um, and Sweetberry Cafe versus Society. Um, where they held that it's not uh, the COVID-19 shutdown orders were not uh, direct physical loss or damage to property. Um, so a pretty you know, ordinary type situation, type decision in line with the others. With the Alley 64 case, that's four decisions, from two from the first district, two from the second district in Illinois, all holding in favor of the insurers um, so that's the act. So Illinois, at least the appellate courts have plainly gone in favor of the insurers. We'll see if the Supreme Court takes uh, a petition for leave to appeal on any of these. Uh, I, it's hard to see that yeah. doing that in the absence of a circuit split or district, a split amongst the districts, um, unless they just think the opinion, the opinions are wrong. So unless they're going to reverse them, I can't really see why they would take them. Because uh, right now they certain the conditions aren't really there, but we'll see. Stranger things have happened. Uh, and as Dan mentioned, or as you mentioned a moment ago, there was a COVID-19 case argued in front of the Seventh Circuit this week. Um, and so we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that and a couple others that are pending still in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, but uh, generally things have continued in favor of insurers. Uh, we'll wait and see what happens with at least the four cases that are pending before state high courts. Yep. Uh, which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong um, for this week. Uh, we, we did, we did kind of well. Um, I tried to give myself an extra win on LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I caught it this morning. Uh, Dan pointed it out and I made a change. So Dan is 125 and five, I'm sorry, 125 and a half, half. and 18 and a half and seven. I am 123 and a half, 20 and a half and seven. Uh, and we'll get to why we're a half in a moment. Uh, Wilson versus Breeze. This is the poor lady that tripped and fell at the at the school, elementary school, walking into a craft fair, and the court reversed, holding that uh, failing to cover that that the act did apply, but there was a question of fact as to whether their conduct was willful and wanton. Right. I think that's pretty straightforward. Alley sixty four is a big case. It's a big case because on a procedural basis, because the court held that in a situation where you're you're deciding class certification, the propriety of class certification, you have to look behind to the merits of the case in the first instance. And the appellants are strike that the appellees argued that you couldn't do that, that they only appealed the class certification order. Therefore, you don't get to look and see the propriety of the judgment that was entered in favor of the insurance. And the court said no. If there is no coverage, then there is no class. So we have to look behind it. And that's ultimately what they decided. They said there was no coverage in the first instance. So no class and no bad faith uh, entered judgment in favor of the insurer. Anything else to say on Alley 64? Huge case because yep. it, there's about 3,000 yep. restaurants in the, that would have been in this class. Right. 
and that's societies of Wisconsin uh, insurer that we've talked about before. Exactly. They, and they wrote this special. This is actually one more thing we need to make. This is on contamination coverage. This isn't on, right. di- is it exactly on direct physical damage to or lo- di- direct physical loss or damage to property? This is a particular contamination coverage that is that society had specially, a special form that they wrote. Um, so a little bit different. Uh, the half uh, case is the U.S. Sprinkler versus Travelers case. Dan, do you want to tell us about why we only got this half right and half wrong? Sure. Uh, this is the Indiana Appellate Court. Uh, the court held that the waiver of subrogation did not apply. Uh, this is the Sprinkler case, but found that the defendant did not have a duty to the other tenants. Um, and this was where uh, there was a tenant. The surgery center was a tenant in the office building. It contracted with U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corporation to inspect and test the building's sprinkler system. Automatic sprinklers was called to the building by the landlord, not by surgery center that had the contract to address a leak. And without consulting or seeking approval from the surgery center, uh, an automatic sprinkler employee made some adjustments to the sprinkler system that led to some flooding. And uh, so uh, that's the half. I think that's the first time we, we, got, got, we got that. We got that half. We got that half uh, right. We said they were going to uh, reverse that and hold that the, or they, they were going to affirm that and hold that their, the waiver of subrogation did not apply because they weren't acting under the contract. But the part we got wrong is the second half. Right. Which deals with whether they owed a duty to the non-contract tenants. And the court yes. held that they did not. The Peter principle is divisible, it turns right. out. That it only, <laughs> the acceptance rule applies to bodily injury claims, but not to property damage claims. I, I see a petition for transfer being granted here uh, so. because they, they teed it up. They said, we can't overrule this. We, I, they kind of strongly, we think it's a really dumb rule, but it isn't our job to do this. This is going to have to be done by the Supreme Court. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. I think we'll have a future future uh, podcast segment on that case. I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to Lichter versus Carroll. The first district uh, doing what the second district does have the brief already have the have the opinion already written before they show up at the argument because uh, there's no way they wrote a, an opinion of that length and that depth in such a short period of time. This was we covered this last week. Right. There's a say they're pulling up second district over here, and that's and, and Justice Gordon, if you recall, wasn't even present. So right. <laughs> so it, so this is the case where the. Defendant died before the action was filed, after the action, but before the action was filed, but the plaintiff didn't know. After the statute runs, they name a special representative uh, of the estate of the deceased defendant. And the trial court dismissed the case saying it wasn't done timely. The court said no. Under these circumstances, 735 ILCS 5-2-1008B2 applies, and they followed the rule and or follow the statute, and they get to they get to have their case. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Uh, so and it, it, it and they didn't get to the relation back doctrine. They didn't have to because right. they found that it was timely filed. Which brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong this week. Uh, Dan, North American Elite versus Menard, affirmed. Affirm. Yeah, I, I think pretty easily affirmed. And Viking versus Moriana reversed. I think it gets reversed after listening to it again. I, at first, I thought it was affirmed, but but the more I listened to it and read about it and thought about it, I, yeah, I think it gets reversed. 
I, I, I think it, it, I'm not even sure it's going to be six, three. I, but Breyer was very much on the fence. He may, he may join uh, the more conservative justices on this. It might, might be seven, two. It might be seven, two. That's, that's a little, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll call a number. I think seven, two. Seven two. I don't think Kagan and Sotomayor are going to. No, 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 no. There's no, chance no, they, they, no, they, they were, they're, they're they were not on board. Nah, they were not on board. No, but but Breyer, you know, we'll see what he does. Uh, he he might be able to be persuaded. And um, he's on his way out. So <laughs> I don't know if the, how that cuts. Frankly, I don't either. I don't either. Who knows? All right, which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. Our rule of the week is the rule of four. It's a Supreme Court uh, informal rule. It's often a subject. Informal? Really? It's not written? It's not written at all. Nope. Okay. Imagine, imagine that. Uh, it's a penumbra. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not even a Supreme Court procedures or rules. It's, uh, it's often a subject of questions. Why does the court have this rule? Uh, as mentioned, it's unwritten, uh, no law, and it's not mandated by the Constitution. Uh, one strong theory is that it protects a court majority from controlling the docket, uh, but it also can be used to address or no, uh, not vote to hear a case where those who would vote know the votes likely are against them. Uh, Justice Frankfurter long ago said of it, quote, the rule of four is not a command of Congress. It is a working rule devised by the court as a practical mode of determining that a case is deserving of review. The theory being that if four justices find that a legal question of general importance is raised, that is ample proof that the question has such importance. This is a fair enough rule of thumb on the assumption that four justices find such importance on an individualized screening of the cases sought to be reviewed, end quote. Uh, but keep in mind the most important number of prescotus is five, as Justice Brennan often noted, you need five votes, as we just talked about, uh, to have a majority. And it, it, again, it's uh, we see this in, in, in various contexts, and one of the ways it comes up is people sometimes will ask me, you know, there's a split of authority or something's coming up and someone's going to file a petition for cert, and how does it work? And, and so what happens is the justices get together in conference. Uh, they review all of the petitions for cert. And again, sometimes they don't vote immediately. Uh, the, the case in Texas, for example, went for 10 weeks or so from, from conference to conference. It gets pushed back. Um, sometimes they will collect a large group of opinions like they did with right. both gun cases and with uh, qualified immunity cases in the last couple of years. They had like 12 of them and then denied them all. Right, and like twelve of each, and then they're like, "Oh, they're they're trying to pick which one they're gonna." Then they denied them all. They got carried over for like a year, some of them. And that's happened with uh, the challenges to the state mandatory bars uh, in, in recent years. Again, there's a bunch pending before the Supreme Court in conference that that were pushed back. I think to this past Friday. I don't know if they'll. These are on the free speech much. issue. Uh, free speech yeah, and the Janus type of you know mandatory whether whether again freedom of association, freedom of speech. So it does happen. And uh, so it, it's an interesting rule. Um, and again, not formalized, but it's the way things work. And, and so we see that. So the Viking case got at least four people to say that they'd hear it uh, that we talked about earlier in the podcast, whereas DoorDash, for whatever reason, did not get the four votes. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting process to use. Indeed. Uh, so with that, um, an important rule, because that's how you get cases heard. Of the thousands that get presented, only you know several dozen get taken. 
This is you, you got to get four people to want to listen to it. Um, and there's a lot of strategy that goes on, I imagine, among the justices as to which cases, you know, can we can we uh, are we going to be do we really want to take this case? Might this person, you know, might, do we really want to take this case? Because sometimes you get what you ask for right. and uh, you don't know what your colleagues are going to do. So there's a lot of, I imagine, caucusing amongst folks. That you you going to be with us on this? Well, you know, right. <laughs> imagine there's a lot of that going on. Of course, training, too. I want this. Will you help me on this? This kind of a thing. I, I have to it believe does. that's happening. Yep. Um, so with that, uh, that brings us to the close of the show. Thank you for joining us uh, for episode 88 of the Podium and Plano podcast. We will see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.